welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. On this evening's The Space Show, we speak to Doug Forrest, who is an artist in England. And not just any ordinary artist, he's a space artist. So, yes, there are lots to find out about that. And... Up in Queensland, Adam Gilmore plans to launch rockets into space. And we uh, will hear what he has to say about his plans for the company Gilmore Space. And we're going to have another episode in our Planet Earth series. Lost track of what number we're up to, but we'll find out anyway. And, uh, of course, we're going to have Space Show News. So why don't we kick out with Space Show News. Two of the astronauts aboard the International Space Station were due to make a spacewalk this morning. However... The walk has been postponed due to a minor medical issue involving one of the astronauts, that's Mark Vanderhey. He was to have gone outside the space station with Japanese astronaut Akihiko Hoshidi uh, to install a support bracket for a third new solar array. Yes, the power station is very power hungry. Now, no new date has been set, bearing in mind that a SpaceX cargo resupply launch is due on August the 28th, and a Russian spacewalk is due sometime in the next few weeks. Meanwhile, Boeing's new CST-100 Starliner spaceship has been returned from the launch site to the Boeing production facility in Florida. This is to allow teams of engineers to work to diagnose and resolve a valve issue in the spaceship's service module propulsion system. The CST-100 Starliner has yet to be successfully tested in space, and it needs to do that before it will be allowed to carry astronauts to the International Space Station. There are currently 11 astronauts living aboard the station. These are two Russians, one Japanese, one French, and six from the United States. In addition, there are three Chinese astronauts aboard the Tiangong Space Station. And those astronauts performed a a spacewalk uh, just a few days ago. There were two of those three, did Now, both space stations can easily be seen orbiting over Melbourne. Indeed, the International Space Station passed over less than half an hour ago and can be seen most evenings for the next two weeks. Now, I did try looking for it this evening, uh, but unfortunately, it was... Although it was nice and fine and clear in the west when I could see Venus shining very brightly to the southwest and to south where the space station was going this evening, uh, it was all cloudy. That's the luck of the game. But uh, as I said, it's passing over uh, in the evenings now. 
Now, the Tiangong uh, is presently passing over Melbourne in the pre-dawn sky, so you need to get up before dawn to see it. Oh, and while we're on the topic of astronauts, if you were one of the over 23,000 people who applied recently to join the European Space Agency's Astronaut Corps, don't worry if you don't hear back from the agency any time soon. This number of applicants far exceeded the agency's most optimistic forecasts. It is going to take the selection committee until the end of this year to even interview and test the applicants. Now, Doug Forrest is a space artist. He lives in London in the United Kingdom. Peter Owood caught up with him in the United States. Yes, this was before COVID. And I had a chat with him about his artwork and what he does. Doug Forrest. And we're joined at Space Fest 2018 by space artist and all-round great guy, Doug Forrest. Welcome to the Space Show, Doug. Thanks, Peter. It's good to be here. Uh, this is my third Space Fest, and uh, this is the place to be if you're uh, into this stuff at all. Right, so we're standing in like a, in a room, a, a gallery with a whole bunch of artists, uh, such as yourself, here displaying their work, and uh, they've left now, but uh, there was a whole lot of astronauts and uh, flight controls and things like that. So tell, tell me about the style of work that you do, Doug, and, and, and uh, your background to how you got into that. Um, I... Um Specifically, uh, I draw. Uh, all my artwork is a graphite pencil uh, creation. Um, I've been working from photographs, um, and I'm, you know, I I look for some interesting imagery. The idea being, of course, stuff that's a bit more rare than uh, the, you know the general photography, which NASA tends to release the same thing over and over. And I'm trying to get away from that and uh, showcase something a little different. Well, I've actually got one of your pieces, and what I like what you did with my piece is that you actually took a, a still from a, of a movie of preparation for launch. So tell me a little bit about that picture. Um, well, it's called Pad Rat, and uh, it basically, I, w- I was a part of uh, trying to save a, the, the launch umbilical tower that launched uh, the Saturn V, uh, Lot 1. Uh, there were three of those, and uh, the one that was left after the Apollo-Soyuz mission, um, I, I got to go visit the pieces which were sitting at the Cape uh, in the industrial area. And uh, at that time, I discovered that uh, they, they were, there was plans to scrap it. And because of the historical significance of the tower, I, um, I decided to write an article which generated a, a campaign called Save the Lot, which I was heavily involved in. And uh, so I wanted one of my pieces at least to showcase uh, the guys that actually worked on the tower. And uh, I, I, from one of my DVD videos that I had, I, I managed to get a screen capture of uh, just a, it's a silhouette of a guy. But you can see the Saturn V in the background uh, at the end of the swing arm. And uh, I, I, I wanted to do that to kind of honor the workers because uh, it's, it's more than just the astronauts, you know. I mean, they all tell you that themselves. They, there's a whole pyramid of people, and, and those guys really don't get much of a mention. And uh, it was really important to me to have something like that. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, that campaign was unsuccessful, but it resulted in some wonderful artwork, so I appreciate that. So we're standing here uh, uh, in front of a, a display of, of, of a good range of your work, a uh, number of which are portraits of astronauts, um, and I can just see over here uh, the crew of uh, Apollo 12. Tell me a little bit about how that came about, and, and you had a bit of activity with, the, with some of the astronauts here at Space Fest a couple of years ago. 
Well, actually, the reason I do this is specifically because of Alan Bean. Um, when Space Fest 6 happened, which was in Pasadena, California, um, I had never met any of the astronauts up until that point, and I really wanted to talk to Alan Bean uh, about art and, and just kind of show off a little bit, you know, as you do. And uh, so what I did is I, I had, at that time, I had a picture of Neil Armstrong that I had done and a picture of the uh, recovery of Apollo 17. And uh, I have a T-shirt press at home. So what I did is I actually took them and, and put them onto two different T-shirts, which I wore to the show. And in the process of meeting Alan Bean, we talked about his art. And he asked me, you know, do you do anything? And I said, yes. And I, I pointed to my shirt. And he said, oh, my gosh, I thought that was a, a photograph. And so he got, a, got close and personal and had a good look at it. And he said, you know, you really should be doing this. You sh-. And, and at first I was like, I don't think so because, you know, nobody knows me, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of really cool artists in the show, a lot who are quite well known, have been in print and what have you. And he said, no, really, you should do this. And uh, he was really quite adamant about it. So I had a, I had a really good think about it. And... Um, I eventually decided to, to approach the show organizers and they said yes. And uh, through that, I got to meet Alan Moore and also Dick Gordon. And uh, because they were just such great guys, I mean, they really were. Uh, and I mean, they were the best of friends and they obviously really missed Pete Conrad. And I decided I would do this picture of them. And I, because they were going to be at the show and I, you know, I wanted them to sign it, of course, for me. Uh, it had to be good, so I really spent probably longer than any time I've done a picture, and uh, yeah, it, it, they they really enjoyed it, and yeah. uh, it was it was a magic moment. It was one of those space fest moments that uh, will I'll never forget. I, I, I think I, I remember seeing a picture of them both holding that uh, that that print, and uh, you can see the delight in their faces. So um, your work is black and white. You do uh, pencil or, or chuck or pencil. Old pencil. Um, but as you meant, you alluded to before, you've now sort of progressed into a slightly different area of uh, a bit more creativity, I guess you could put it. And tell me about the story of, of Apollo 15 and Dave Scott. Uh, well, last year at Space Fest, I, 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 I brought something to the table to, to talk to Dave about. Um, I, I kind of wanted him to kind of open up. I wanted to talk to him about some of the unique things that he did on the moon because I was trying to get away from uh, just copying photographs. And I was really looking for him because he had done some fairly unique things like the stand-up EVA that he did at the beginning of the, the mission after they landed. And uh, so in order to do that, I did a portrait of him uh, just to kind of hopefully get his interest. And uh, I didn't finish it. In fact, I still haven't finished it. But, but I got just to the point where I had the face done and it wasn't scary. <laughs> it looked like him. And... Uh, I, I brought it up with uh, that and a photograph that I wanted him to sign. And uh, so I talked to him about the, the unique aspects of what I was aiming for. And he said, well, yeah, the saver was a, was a good one. Uh, and that, that would be a good one. But he said, what about... And he, he started telling me about on EVA2 um, at... I think it was an unscheduled stop. They called it Station 6A, uh, where Jim Irwin actually discovered that the rock they were going to sample was green. And but there was a there was a lot of other issues involved around the site because they were on a 18 degree slope, uh, according to Dave, and the soil was very very loose as is a very powdery and and it was kind of deep, and although the rover didn't really sink in, they did, and they were a little concerned because the rover was initially parked above 
the, the boulder that they were going to sample and they could get down to it, but they were concerned that in the spacesuits they might actually have a bit of problem getting back to it. Uh, imagine, you know, trying to walk uphill in deep snow, really deep snow, kind of similar to that, where it's slippery. And so David backed the rover up and kind of parked it down to the, the below the, the boulder. And uh, But when he got off it, he discovered that the rover actually started slipping down a hill sideways. And so uh, Jim Orman came down and actually knelt down on his side of the rover and, and actually held on to it. And I just thought this was such a wonderful story. And Dave, I, I could tell from the way he was talking that this was obviously really a favourite part because so many different things happen at once. And uh, so, I mean, before we'd finished talking, because he, he started kind of strongly suggesting that, oh, it'd be really great if you did this. And I, I, I thought, yeah, I'm definitely going to do this. This is a gift. And it would be something more unique to what I was normally doing. It was really what I was looking for in a in a story, because uh, there was no TV at the time on the rover. The, the 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 camera actually was off because they weren't able to get a, a link to Earth, and uh, there really weren't many pictures. There were some, but very few. So I did a lot of research on the Apollo Lunar Surface Journal, which actually he pointed me to. Uh, and it's a great resource. You can you can actually look at all the transcripts of them talking between themselves and Houston. And it's actually quite amusing because Dave added a lot of footnotes to the uh, ALSJ. And uh, he's talking about how, you know, Houston's in the blind. It, you know, it's almost as if they think they're on the edge of a cliff. And <laughs> it's, and, uh-huh. and these, these fighter jocks are <laughs> doing these things. But... It sounded worse than it really was, uh, but they were—they did have to be careful. Um, I mean, Dave mentioned that you know he didn't think the rover was going to tumble because it was so low, but it did slip, and you know they were—they were just being super careful. But the rock ended up—it really was green. They had green elements in it, which was caused by an abundance of magnesium oxide, and it, it showed up as uh, very tiny microscopic glass spheres that were green. And there was a band of it through the, the, the rock that Jim Irwin described as a foot and a half to two feet thick. And, uh, and actually, after I showed Dave the drawing the other day, he actually, I got him to kind of show me on a photograph where was the green, because you can't really tell on the, on the photographs, although he has suggested that if I sit down and do a bit of photo manipulation, I actually will be able to see it. So I, I do plan on doing that. <laughs> you, we were talking last night, and you were saying that he actually did a bit of work in PowerPoint on the image, and he, he, brought up, he said he brought up some green, so it would be interesting to see. Yeah, it should be able to, oh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to do the same, but, uh, you know, I mean, I can, I can get in touch with him. Uh, he, he gave me his details. I can, I can email him. Uh, but the, the key for me, and it really was a key point for me coming to this show, was I'd done these pictures, and I didn't tell him I was doing them, even though, you know, he strongly suggested, but it wasn't like it was a commission or anything like that. Uh, but I, I decided that I wanted to do something that had to be correct because I, I add a lot of detail to my pictures. I try and make them as realistic as possible. And uh, I, I ended up, as a happy accident, uh, I, I created in Photoshop some uh, from the existing photographs. I was trying to get my head around what the environment really looked like. And uh, I ended up with deciding to do a reverse point of view shot. So one is from one direction, one from 180 degrees away. And uh, 
I was really happy with the end result. I thought it came out great, and it, and it is something that nobody had seen before. And uh, of course, a, a key was to get Dave to come and actually see it in the booth. So uh, the other day, uh, there wasn't a line at his booth, and I, I, I'm actually facing his booth here, uh, which was perfect placement. And uh, I got him to come over, and uh, we spent some really great about. 20 minutes he, he, and he, he talks about it and gave me a little pointers and we didn't quite get it right uh, on the on really on just the uh, the tracks that the rover left because of course I'm adding all that uh, to to my picture um, but for the most part he said he thought it was great and the uh, they were actually very accurate I mean I, the hardest part especially the one there's a I have a, a vista looking across the plane uh, well, it's not the plane, I suppose, but you're looking at Mount Hadley and you're looking at the South Cluster of Craters and Swan Range. And it was really important to me to get the details of those right because, of course, Dave is intimately uh, uh, familiar with those sites. And I didn't want him going, oh, that crater's not in the right place. Oh, that one's too small <laughs> kind of thing. That was that was a big deal. But he said, no, he said, you got it. You nailed it. These are great. Well, to get that sort of compliment and, and uh, endorsement from Dave Scott, I think it's a testament to your skill and dedication to the subject. So uh, congratulations. So if people want to look at these uh, images and maybe even purchase them, where, where, where can they go? Uh, you can go to www.apollo-arts.com. Um, I, I am going to be putting the new ones up on the website because I wanted to surprise Dave. I haven't actually done it yet, but I will as soon as I get home. Um, and uh, yeah, you can order from there. I, I ship worldwide and uh, all the rest of it. But all the art that I do is there. And uh, I hope there's something for everyone. Uh, something for everyone. And uh, I also have some other bits and pieces from. Uh, I had a friend who was one of the divers on Apollo 17 uh, recovery. And uh, I have a, an interview on there plus some photographs that he gave me access to of things that have never been published apart from on my website. Uh, so there's some unique things on there, and just uh, there's a there's a gallery of astronaut encounters. It's all about me, <laughs> and <laughs> it's 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 me basically living the dream. Because I mean, these guys are my heroes. I grew up watching this, and uh, you know, I, I grew up in Scotland. I never thought I would ever meet these people. I never mind be on first name terms with them. So it's it really is a dream come true. And and I I, I truly thank Alan Bean for pointing me and, and really telling me I should do this because without him I would never have had the courage to do it. Yeah, well that's right. Well sadly we lost uh, both Alan and uh, Dick Gordon between the last Space Test and this one so it's, uh, it's sadness but I mean it, um, the fact that you're carrying on and being inspired by, by uh, Alan and, and his work it's a great tribute to him as well I think. So listen, uh, thank you so much for joining us on the Space Show and uh, it's uh, we'll see you next year hopefully. Thanks Peter. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. <laughs> And that was Space Association President Peter Arwood in conversation with Doug Forrest, who, as you heard, is a space artist, and he lives in London in the United Kingdom. Coming up soon will be Adam Gilmore of Gilmore Space. This is The Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. And we're a non-profit, non-political group of space enthusiasts. And, yeah, we like learning about space, talking with people about space, and sharing that excitement with people like yourself. Now, if you'd like some more information about the association or some of the issues we discussed on the program, 
then why don't you get on the internet? Most people can these days and go to space.asn.au space.asn.au and from there you can link through to our television channel. <laughs> well, yeah, sort of you call YouTube a, a television uh, where we have videos from our past meetings going back quite a way. Uh, so you can access that through space.asn.au and you can find out also about our next meetings. And of course it will remain to be seen depending on COVID as to whether it's virtual or in real person. We normally meet in South Melbourne, but um, yeah, <laughs> we can't at the moment. So space.asn.au to find out more about the Space Association of Australia. Adam Gilmore is the Chief Executive Officer and Founder of Gilmore Space. They hang out in Queensland and they have a number of projects underway, including plans to launch satellites. Recently, they, Adam um, spoke about the company and its plans. And uh, boy, they've got some big plans for next year. Here we go with Adam Gilmore. We've had a pretty exciting start to the year. Um, you know, team's up to 50 staff now, and um, we've managed to get uh, a lot of senior uh, rocket engineers from all around the world uh, into the company, which we really needed. And um, we've locked in the design of the vehicle. Um, and we've got a preliminary design and we've started testing components of the vehicle, uh, everything from rocket engines to uh, composite tanks um, to thrust vector control systems, avionics uh, and software. So all parts of the rocket we are actually started testing already and this is going to be a year of testing for us. So we've got a lot of engine tests ahead of us. Um, and a lot of other uh, tests on the structure of the of the rocket as well, and it's been really good. I mean, we're we're venture uh, backed, so we have venture capital backing, and and they've been um, putting a lot of pressure on us to show results. So we've got a uh, timetable of milestones for the year, and in the first quarter we hit uh, we had about ten milestones for the first quarter, and we hit nine out of the ten, and we're completing the tenth one uh, tomorrow. So our investors are starting to see some traction in the company, which is good. And I think it's going to be a very good year for us. We've, um, we've locked down the fuel we're going to use. Um, we've gotten a, a lot of customer interest. It's, it's been pretty good. I think, um, you know, you hear stories about a lot of rocket companies starting in the world and, you know, they're really, really overblown. There's not a lot of companies that are what I'd call two or three years away from launch and there's been a few that have kind of failed uh, in the last 12 to 18 months and we're not really seeing a lot of competition uh, around at the moment so there's a certain payload class that we're looking at that some of our competitors can't do uh, so we're looking pretty good I think our biggest challenge is getting the technology done now, I started the company um, seven years ago. We started building rockets about five years ago. And you know, every year that I keep getting more and more into the business, 
I realized how much harder and harder it is to build a rocket. And, you know, that that hardness has really hit home in the last three months of, as we've gone through the preliminary design. And, you know, there's Excel spreadsheets that are miles long, full of components and, and configuration management and everything you can think of. Uh, so it is a very complicated beast to design, but um, we're giving it a good shot and I'm pretty confident we're going to get there. So, you know, I hope we launch in 2022. We're trying to launch in the early stage of 2022. COVID's slowed us down a little bit. Uh, the investors are saying that the pool of money to invest in space is not dying but slowing down a bit, and they've told us to kind of relax a bit on on heavily growing. So we're going to have to uh, be very careful on how much money we spend for, say, the next 12 months, which is frustrating because we're at a point where, you know, we're proving technology, it's working. Uh, I've never had so many things work in the business, you know, like normally you, you know, have something work and then something fails. But we've had like success after success after success, which has been fantastic. So, you know, COVID has been very painful for us. Um, but, you know, we've got enough money to survive for quite a while and we've been very careful with it. And I think um, I'm not super worried about uh, the long run. It's just more the short run. So, you know, I certainly hope that we can get some of that Artemis Moon Mars money that will really help. Um, and, you know, any anything we can get is good. And, um, you know, the Queensland government released a space policy a couple of months ago, right before COVID struck. So they've kind of been very engaged in COVID. But I think, you know, as we recover in the months ahead, they're going to come back out and start to invest money in the industry, which is really good. Um, so generally, I'm, I'm very positive. Um, you know, as hard as it becomes to build a rocket, I'm still adamant that we can build one. And we've got a really good team of people that have done it before. And it's amazing when you hire rocket engineers that have already built a rocket, their attitude is is quite amazing because, you know, you look at it and you think, you know, that's impossible. And they go, oh, no, we've done it. We can do it. It's, it's not a big deal. We'll just do that or change it around. And it's a very refreshing attitude to have. Um, so it's good. That's about it for my update. From Adam Gilmore, Chief Executive Officer of Gilmore Space. An update on the company progress. Uh, he had some additional comments to make as well in response to questions. So Adam, uh, Adam Gilmore, um, so uh, you're looking at uh, a launch in 2022, I believe you, you said. So is this... Um, a new rocket because I I visited you about a year ago I think and I saw a rocket you had there in the um, in the facility you've got there uh, is that a derivation of that is it the same rocket is that something else or what are we looking at Yeah, Peter, that was a test rocket. We actually tried to launch that last year and we failed right at the last minute, um, but it was really just a technology test bed for us, um, so it was a stepping stone. And, um, you know, the vehicle that we're doing next, the the thrust of the engine's about double the thrust of that rocket. Um, and there's four motors on the first stage instead of one. And it's a three-stage vehicle. That was a one-stage vehicle. Um, and it's about 20 times heavier and four times uh, taller. So significantly bigger. That was just a baby test one. 
So is is the launch in 2022 going to be an all-up of that full configuration or are you going to have yes. an incremental test uh, program? No, I guess one of the things that we learned kind of the hard way is you think that a, a, a baby step doesn't take very long, but it also takes a long time. So we're not going to try any more baby steps. We're going to go straight to the, the final vehicle. How simple is it for Australian launch providers to rely on overseas space situational awareness assessments for assuring safe trajectories into orbit. Would Australia benefit from establishing a sovereign space assurance capabilities for monitoring and assessing risks to Australian launched payloads? I suspect the answer would be yes. <laughs> Anyone want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a bit. I mean, there's quite a sophisticated system already run by the Americans that the world uses, and there's been more and more countries that are contributing to that um, endeavour, and I think even Australia does. It's not something I'm an expert at. Adam Seisman can probably chip in, but I think even Australia is contributing to looking at what's in the skies above Australia. And I think um, there's going to be a, um, a move already is a move from defence into the Department of Commerce or something like that in America. I don't think it's something that any country like Australia can do by itself. We're always going to rely on other countries, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, that can look for stuff as well. Um, but it all helps. Adam Seisman, do you want to chip in with what Australia is doing on this? Yeah, 100%. Um, uh, Adam, I'm, I'm uh, not the expert, but I can offer some um, uh, some things. Well, you, you correct on the point that um, that the US Air Force is transitioning um, uh, a large portion of that space situational awareness or space domain awareness, as, um, uh, as they call it now, uh, from uh, from uh, CSPOC, um, the Command Space Operations Command, to uh, Joint Space Operations Command in the Department of Commerce, like you said. So the US recognises that the vast majority of space traffic is in fact commercial. And so how um, how the US manages um, uh, conjunction alerts and, and so on, uh, it's very much a commercial focus. And so they've, they've moved the large part of, or they're moving the large part of that operation into the commercial domain. Um, but the US relies on sensors uh, all around the earth, um, not just uh, and not just uh, on on continental United States. Um, uh, of course, uh, you'd be aware of the Space Surveillance Telescope um, up in Western Australia. Um, of course, the um, the role that the you know things like the ESA tracking station out in Western Australia, and uh, you know there's a, there's a whole range of capabilities and a whole whole uh, whole lot of capabilities that exist in Australia that are all part of that global uh, global network. So. Um, I'm sorry, I forget the details of the of the actual question. Um, Australia plays an important role. There's a whole lot of firms like um, Electro Optic Systems, EOS, um, based in Canberra. Um, other companies like um, Salentium Defence down in in Adelaide, um, looking at a passive radar system for, for space tracking. So um, there's a whole range of things that are that really do come together to inform that that network. Um, part of an answer, perhaps. Sounds good. This is for Adam Gilmore. How are you and your team planning on mitigating the risks and the verification or validation sort of that you'd be gaining from doing test launches when you're going to go for that big step of straight to the four-engine, three-stage vehicle? Yeah, we're going to do um, ground tests. So we'll do tests of what the flight vehicle would be like uh, on the ground. 
Um, we're probably going to even do a vertical test, which is what most of the other rocket companies do as well. And that simulates pretty much everything right up until launch and even launch, you know, before you start accelerating. So uh, it's it's the best, the next best thing you can do before you do a launch. And in terms of other bits and pieces in the rocket, you, you know, you've got shaker tables and um, thermal vacuum chambers and stuff like that. So we're going to cost effectively test every single system of the rocket before we launch. Awesome. Thank you. My analysis of the market is, for some reason, I still can't fathom. Most of the major rocket companies in the world are building bigger and bigger rockets, and people are not building bigger and bigger satellites. So they're either going for moon Mars missions, which, you know, there won't be that many of those rocket launches either, or they need to look at other ways to make money from these massive rockets going into space. And we were listening there to Adam Gilmore the Chief Executive Officer of Gilmore Space. Well, coming up soon, we're going to have our Planet Earth series. And uh, look, we're just going to go back to where we were earlier and in the news. And there's a spacecraft called Lucy that is uh, about <laughs> not, not far away from launch. And... We are going to hear now some of the comments that have been put on a, a, an archival disc, well, actually a plaque uh, about it. And some of the people who've made their comments on the plaque are going to speak now. And this is what I want to say to people, to beings, to consciousness who are so far away, I can't even imagine them. To represent our culture accurately, we should include hopelessness, risk-taking, the role of fortune, good or bad. To understand each desire has an itch, to know that we are responsible for the lives we change. No faith comes without cost, no one believes without dying. There are no curses, only mirrors held up to the souls of gods and mortals. Remember, you are all people, and all people are you. Remember, you are this universe, this universe is you. I would just like to say that this wonderful emissary to the Trojan asteroids is itself a message. Lucy speaks for all that is best about human ingenuity, curiosity, and endeavor. Do you still have birds that wake you up in the morning with their singing and lovers who gaze at the stars, trying to read in them the fate of their love? If you do, we'll recognize them and receive those, those words inscribed on a plaque from all of us, for all of us, 
filled with those those aspirations and that inspiration and that imagination that we need so much right now. A little noisy, but I'm so excited. Lucy is going back in the sky with diamonds. Johnny will love that. Anyway, if you meet anyone up there, Lucy, give them peace and love from me. And that last comment there from Ringo Starr. The Space Show has a home on the internet. And there you can find more than 1,800 features for your listening enjoyment uh, and some photographs. And in fact, in the day or two, we'll put up some photos of um, Doug Forrest. Now, uh, you can um, find these uh, items at Space dot southernfm dot com dot au that's space dot southernfm dot com dot au for past features from the space show earth below us drifting falling floating weightless calling calling home Welcome to episode 19 of our Planet Earth series. Now, these programs are a mix of factual reports, uh, sometimes poetry and sometimes some fanciful music, but all of them about our home planet. And we begin with a weather report from Greenland. According to Reuters, rain has fallen at the highest point of the Greenland ice sheet for the first time on record. And this is another worrying sign of warming for the ice sheet, which is already melting at an increasing rate. According to Imrani Das, who is a glaciologist with Columbia University's Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory, that's not a healthy sign for an ice sheet. He said that water on ice is bad. It makes the ice sheet more prone to surface melt. Well, the rain fell for several hours at the ice sheet's 2,216-metre-high summit on August the 14th, where temperatures remained above freezing for about nine hours. Now, temperatures at the ice cap rarely lift above freezing, but have now done so three times since 2012. So, things are not looking good for the Greenland ice sheet. On November the 2nd, 2009, SMOS was launched from the Placets Cosmodrome on top of a rocket launcher. SMOS is one of ESA's Earth Explorer missions that address key scientific challenges and demonstrate new technology in space. Carrying a novel instrument to return information on soil moisture and ocean salinity, both key components of the Earth's water cycle, SMOS is advancing our knowledge of how water is cycled between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere. Understanding these exchange processes is crucial for understanding climate change, for improving weather prediction, and, for example, helping to optimise water consumption when growing crops. 
small measures directly the surface soil moisture. So this is really the kind of rain gauge of the atmosphere. So we collect the rain and we store it. Measuring surface soil moisture gives us a hint on the rainfall, so we can partition the rainfall. But also looking at its, its evolution, we can link it to different other things. One of them is of course dryness or wetness of the soil, so floods or droughts. But also uh, the fact that the impact of uh, other events, such as El Niño or La Niña, and its impact on the rainfall distribution, hence the wetness. So it is used to infer or droughts or monitor the droughts, but also, of course, for food security in many regions to anticipate uh, crop yield, especially in uh, areas which are uh, limited by rainfall. This research satellite was originally planned to be in orbit for five years. But thanks to Europe's technological excellence, it has already doubled its life in orbit providing time series data for a variety of applications. For instance, SMOS data is used for ESA's climate change initiative, through which data are compiled to understand how climate variables are changing over time. Its data are also combined with data from other satellites, such as Cryosat, to map the thickness of sea ice, a crucial climate variable. With SMOS, we have the possibility to measure the sea ice thickness in particular, the thickness of thin ice we can measure with SMOS. We have also the companion, the ESA Earth uh, Explorer Cryosat. This was specifically designed to measure the sea ice thickness. And Cryosat is great to measure the thickness of thick ice from the freeboard. But with SMOS, we can accurately measure the thin ice. SMOS data are also used to map the freezing and thawing of soil. This is important because frozen soil, and in particular permafrost, acts as a carbon source. When permafrost thaws, carbon is released back into the atmosphere, amplifying the greenhouse effect. By comparing data over several years, SMOS helps us to better understand variables affected by and affecting climate change. Over the years, SMOS has proven to be a versatile satellite going way beyond its original scientific goals. Today, SMOS data are even used operationally for weather prediction by organizations such as the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts. SMOS is very important for weather prediction because weather is related to forecast of the atmospheric variables, but it's also related to land surface forecast and ocean forecast, river forecast. And for this, for weather prediction, uh, our strategy is to develop an Earth system approach where we have a consistent forecast for the different components of the Earth system. And in this context, uh, variables uh, which are at the interface between land surface and atmosphere or ocean and atmosphere are very important to ensure the consistency across the different earth system components. And SMOS is exactly that. It is providing information at the interface uh, between the different earth system components. Over the course of a decade, SMOS has given the scientific community an unprecedented wealth of data. And while it has long surpassed its intended lifespan, SMOS remains hard at work while new missions are being studied and prepared to ensure continuous data sets with even higher resolutions and improved technology. Wildfires, bushfires if you will,
have been scorching many areas of the Northern Hemisphere in the past two months. For example, more than 400,000 hectares of land has been burnt in Northern California. One, the Dixie Fire, is the second largest in history. It has burnt 300,000 hectares. The Terra satellite orbits the Earth at an altitude of 700 kilometres, as it has done since late 1999. One of the instruments aboard is the Multi-Angle Imaging Spectroradiometer. This has nine cameras that view the Earth at different angles. This multiple view has allowed scientists to calculate the height of the snow plumes, sorry, the smoke plumes. Whilst most of the smoke reached an altitude of 3,000 metres, some was reaching 6,000 metres. The higher smoke goes, the further it travels. In recent weeks, smoke from fires in the western United States and Canada has blanketed much of the east coast of North America. On the space show, we're looking at planet Earth. This is planet Earth. You're looking at planet Earth. Paul Davies will be known to many Australians because he used to live here for quite a few years. Well, he has this uh, thought on how life on Earth began. Paul Davies. Earth and Sky. The question about whether life is a freak accident or built into the nature of the universe is wide open, but it's testable by not doing very much. We simply have to study life on our own planet a little bit more closely, and we might answer that uh, question which everybody would like to know. Do we live in a bio-friendly universe? You're listening to Paul Davies of Arizona State University, and this is Earth Sky's Clear Voices for Science. Davies is a cosmologist, theoretical physicist, and astrobiologist. At a science meeting, he spoke more about the search for life beyond Earth with Earth Sky's Jorge Salazar. So tell us about the latest on um, scientists' search for alien life, um, something that you've described as life as we don't yet know it. What's happening here? We're all used to the idea of life on other worlds and think of this as alien life, as having a separate origin, as being weird, different from us, not only what it looks like, but also its biochemistry. A lot of thoughts have been given to, well, if we find life on Mars or Europa, what will we look for? It could be completely different from nucleic acid and protein life that we find here on Earth. But this assumes that life is going to form readily in Earth-like conditions uh, all around the universe. So there is that general assumption which underpins the whole of the subject of astrobiology, that life is easy to make and widespread. Uh, but we don't know that. It could be that it is a stupendously incredible freak. It could be that life is just confined to Earth. It's happened only once and we're it. Uh, so how can we discriminate between these two different extremes? Well, one way is to look for whether life has happened many times on Earth. There's no planet more Earth-like than Earth itself. So if life does emerge readily in Earth-like conditions, it should have happened many times over right here on our home planet. And then the next question is, how do we know it didn't? 
Uh, has anybody actually looked? Uh, most life on Earth is microbial. Most microbes haven't been characterized, let alone had their gene sequenced. So it's entirely possible that in that microbial realm is what we like to call a shadow biosphere. Uh, it doesn't mean that it's sort of shadowy in the uh, mystical sense. It just means that we don't yet know what it is. We don't recognize it for what it is. We could be dealing just with ordinary-looking microbes, but with their innards completely different. They could have a different uh, organization inside. They could have different biochemistry. Um, and we wouldn't know that because the techniques that biochemists and microbiologists use to study life uh, is customized to life that we know. So it simply doesn't work with life that we don't know. So we have no idea what's out there. 99.99% of microbial species are still unknown, and it could well be in our environment that there are uh, microbes with radically different biochemistry that would suggest they're descended from a different origin. Life may have started 58 times on Earth, and we could have uh, 27 shadow biospheres descended uh, from those different genesis, and only one of these achieved multicellular life, uh, and we're the product of that, uh, but we can't rule out the, the possibility that the others are still out there somewhere. Where on Earth are scientists, um, astrobiologists, looking for how life may have evolved? So there's been a lot of research on the setting in which life on Earth may have begun, and there are various fashions, but one of these is that it might have started hot and deep. My own opinion, for what it's worth, is that it may well have started one or two kilometers beneath the seabed near one of the volcanic vents that are so common where the internal heat of the Earth comes up and meets the ocean and creates thermal pandemonium, uh, and there's a lot of cycling of uh, water and uh, minerals and so on. I think that offers uh, a possible setting so that life may have begun in this uh, uh, in what we might call hell, deep down under the ground, and then only later evolved and adapted to cooler surface conditions on Earth. Uh, but it could be this is totally wrong. It may be that life didn't even start on Earth. It may have started in space. It may have started, in fact, in very cold conditions, been delivered to Earth uh, in micrometeorites or comet impacts or something of that sort, uh, and then established itself on Earth and evolved uh, to... Uh, spread to the deep hot subsurface and then it may be that during the heavy early bombardment of the earth when the surface of the earth was sterilized by uh, enormous impacts only the things that live deep underground in the in the hot temperatures got through that genetic uh, bottleneck and so uh, it could well be that the descendants of uh, life on earth now are descended from these few organisms that survived that impact but the origin of life we have no idea it could have been somewhere else entirely so people have looked in settings as, or I say looked, they have conjectured about settings as diverse as raindrops and drying lagoons and uh, uh, deep um, subsurface pores of rocks or uh, on Mars. It's entirely likely life began on Mars and came later to Earth. Mars was actually a more favorable planet for life to get going uh, in the early history of the solar system. So uh, again, I think we don't have to be restricted to Earth. Um, but wherever it started, what we're interested in is, did it start more than once? And how can we best test that? Uh, it seems to me that the best way is looking for multiple forms of life right here on Earth. What's the most likely form that life might be like on other worlds? Oh, I think microbial life is uh, easy to imagine. Uh, in fact, I think there's a good chance there's microbial life on Mars, possibly also on Europa. Uh, microbes can survive under a much wider range of conditions than uh, multicellular life. 
So I don't think anybody expects to go to Mars and find uh, you know, cats and dogs walking around, but uh, there's still a good chance that there's microbial life in the, the deep subsurface. Uh, and so the same thing here on Earth. We're not talking about multicellular alien or weird or shadow life, uh, because we would already have noticed if there, was, uh, there were large things which were not our form of life, they would have been studied. Uh, but because the microbial realm is so little studied, there's every possibility that some of its inhabitants are descendants of a second or subsequent genesis. What is the most important thing that you'd like the public today to know about the search for alien life? Uh, well, if we're talking about the search for alien life on Earth specifically and not searching the whole universe, I think the most important thing uh, that they should know is that the question about whether life is uh, uh, a freak accident or built into the nature of the universe is wide open, but it's testable by not doing very much. We simply have to study life on our own planet a little bit more closely, and we might answer that uh, question which everybody would like to know. Do we live in a bio-friendly universe? I'd like to believe we do, but at this stage, we can't be sure. It could be that we are freaks in a cold, hostile, friendless universe, uh, but it could be that, that life is built into the fundamental nature of things, and that would be much more congenial in my view. You've been listening to Paul Davies, director of the Beyond Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science at Arizona State University. To subscribe to this and other free science interview podcasts, visit the subscribe page at earthsky.org. I'm Deborah Bird. Earth Sky is a clear voice for science. We're at earthsky.org. The European Space Agency is developing a satellite called Forum. F-O-R-U-M. It will measure previously unobserved far-infrared radiation emitted by the Earth with a wavelength of 15.5 micrometers. This is significant because the Earth's peak energetic emission is in the far infrared. About half of Earth's outgoing long-wave radiance is far infrared. It makes a dominant contribution to clear sky atmospheric radiative cooling. This in turn, is a key driver of atmospheric dynamics. It is also the radiation that gets trapped by molecules such as carbon dioxide and methane, the culprits causing the greenhouse effect. Well, this has been The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. Hopefully we'll be back next Wednesday at 7 o'clock.